scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verse 1 to 28. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 743. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Daniel, chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition for any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel, making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. 
As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then the king Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And pray for us again. Father, thank you for the word that has just been read. And now we ask for your spirit's help to understand more deeply more clearly, that we might be changed, transformed by your truth found here. Oh Lord, do this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that this pandemic that we have been going through has presented the American church a new set of challenges. They're not new from the long standpoint of history, but for us, they, they are certainly new challenges. One of those being, and this challenge is a, a real source of intense debate and disagreement, that would be our allegiance to the Lord as Christians and how that might conflict with our allegiance to the state as citizens. In other words, how do we maintain ultimate allegiance to Christ as Lord while at the same time subjecting ourselves to governing authorities as we're commanded to do in places like Romans chapter 13. What does it look like in our particular context to render unto Caesars what is Caesars and unto God what is God's? See, over the course of this pandemic, we've experienced new realities. We've seen mandates and injunctions passed down by various levels of government that have restricted how churches operate. Churches have been prohibited from congregating indoors, or limits have been set on the size of their gatherings, or religious activities within their gatherings, like singing, have been banned. Now, many churches have complied. Others have protested or sued, and others have engaged in civil disobedience, some on more principled grounds than others. Now, of course, Christians are going to disagree 
on the legitimacy of the state's authority to restrict a church's religious practice. But of course, the context of a deadly pandemic is clearly unique, and, and the common good of our fellow neighbors has to be factored into our decision-making. So these are, let's admit, these are difficult times, and we are de- dealing with difficult issues during this time. But these issues do help put things in proper perspective for us, because the American church has, for generations been largely sheltered from the conflict and tension that usually is found between church and state. I think we should be thankful. We should be grateful for our founders and and the protections that they enshrined within the Constitution. I think that's why these recent experiences of government restrictions on how we worship has felt so jarring for us Christians. It feels strange and unusual But the reality is is that throughout church history and around the globe today, that, my friends, is par for the course. That's normal for churches around the world today and throughout history. So, So many Christians have had to deal with far greater restrictions hindering them from freely practicing their faith, and yet they still pressed on. And they continued to flourish as individual believers and as the church So we have much to learn as the American church. We have much to learn from the persecuted church around the globe and throughout history. To be honest, if the American church doesn't learn how to navigate even these pandemic-related restrictions, if we don't know how to flourish in spite of these things, then we're going to be ill-prepared to handle the more explicit persecution and opposition that is coming down the road as our society grows more secular and increasingly hostile to the Christian gospel and to Christian moral teachings. So in light of our recent experience collectively, in light of these recent government restrictions or what some would probably want to describe as government intrusions, I think that all makes us so primed and ready to hear this morning's passage, to consider this story of Daniel and the lion's den. Because the authorities in the book of Daniel, you have to admit, are far more hostile to biblical faith compared to any city council or any governor. And their laws are far more restrictive, far more repressive. And so Daniel's response here in our story, his response to the attempts to restrict his faith and practice is both inspiring and very instructive for the church today. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is to consider three key narratives in this familiar, uh, three key moments in this familiar narrative. If you want to follow along, uh, you'll see an outline in your bulletin. First key moment, we're going to see a test of loyalty. Daniel falls victim to a plot to test his loyalty to the law of the land versus the law of his Lord. Where does his allegiance ultimately lie? Second, we see a refusal to bend. Daniel refuses to bend to the mounting pressure against him, and at the same time, the society around him refuses to bend and to accommodate his faith. And third, we see a display of true sovereignty. The most powerful man on earth at the time was utterly helpless and afraid. 
while the true sovereign put his sovereign power on display for all to see and for all to respond accordingly. So friends, let's begin by looking at the test of loyalty that Daniel is subjected to by the machinations of his opponents. These events are found for us in verses 1 to 9. The chapter begins by introducing us to Darius the Mede. We're told that he was the one who overthrew the Babylonian king and he established the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the exact identity of Darius the Mede is still up for debate. Outside of Scripture, there is no corroborating evidence of a Darius who reigned prior to Cyrus the Persian, who was widely known in history as the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. So commentators have various suggestions on, on, on who he is. Uh, three possibilities to consider. One explanation is that the preserved records for this particular historical figure, beyond the, New, the Old Testament, simply aren't available to us today. He's... The the evidence beyond what we find here is just lost to history. Another option is that Darius might actually be an alias for the general that was serving under Cyrus the Persian, the the, the particular general who was in charge uh, of the sacking of Babylon, and he was later assigned governorship of the former kingdom. So it could be him. Or a third alternative is that Darius is actually an alias for Cyrus the Persian himself the first king of the Medo-Persians. Cyrus was actually part Mede and part Persian, so perhaps this is just his name among the Medes versus his name among the Persians. So when you look down to the last verse, in verse 28, uh, uh, commentators uh, suggest that this could also be translated and perhaps best translated as during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that's the um, option that I'm going to go with as we're moving along here in this narrative, that we are dealing with Cyrus himself. Now, as for the identity of Daniel, we are introduced to him back in chapter 1. We're told that he was a young man back then living in Jerusalem during the time when it was uh, overthrown by the Babylonians. And so he was taken captive during the exile, and he rose in the ranks He proved himself faithful in service to Nebuchadnezzar and to the subsequent kings of Babylon. He outlasted all of those kings, and he witnessed firsthand the decline of Babylon and the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, under these new rulers, he continued to gain favor, and he eventually was appointed to serve as one of three chief officials who were in charge of 120 satraps, or provincial governors, And Daniel distinguished himself among his peers to the degree that the king was considering to give him even greater responsibility, making him essentially the prime minister. He was going to be the king's right hand. And that triggered the events of our story because it incited the jealousy of the other officials. And they tried their hardest to dig up dirt on Daniel, but, quote, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. These guys realize that there's no way they're going to find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless they find it in connection with his faith, with the law of God. And so they manufactured a conflict of interest, but pitting the laws of the land against the laws 
of the Lord. Now, before we consider the particular details of this injunction that they were able to secure, I think it's important to note that by this point in his life, Daniel was in either his 70s or more likely he was in his 80s. So he had lived a long and successful life and had a successful career he, he faced more hardship, and he has been through more challenges than most of us can even imagine. So you would think that by now, by his age, all of the big trials and tests of life would be in the rear view, that they would be a memory of the past. It would be stories that he would tell to others. But it turns out, well, it turns out that Daniel's biggest trial was still ahead of him, that his greatest test of faith came not at the beginning of his story, but near the end. And so, friends, I think this is a needed warning, especially for the older believers among us, to not lose your vigilance, to not assume that the biggest tests and the biggest trials of your life are behind you. Don't assume that the years that you have ahead of you are going to just be smooth and predictable. Daniel's story is a good reminder to not let your guard down during the twilight years of your life, but instead to keep fighting the good fight of the faith, to keep the faith until you cross that finish line and finish the race. But, you know, this is also not just a, a good warning, but it's also a strong encouragement for those of you who are more seasoned saints to realize that God still has plans to use you in the latter years of life. Just as he used Daniel to bring himself glory and, and, and to use Daniel to impact the faith of others through your faithful witness and, and, and through your steadfast commitment to the Lord. He still wants to use you in mighty ways. So be encouraged by Daniel's story and be prepared. Be prepared for the trial that is yet to come. Now, friends, let's look back at the text. Let's look back at verse 7. Daniel's opponents come together to conspire against them. They, they convince King Darius to establish an ordinance and to enforce an injunction that requires all prayers and petitions to be directed towards the king or else you will be cast into the lion's den. Now this was only a temporary injunction for the next 30 days. So it's not really clear what the long-term value is for establishing this law. But the thing is, is that his opponents weren't really thinking long-term. They knew that regardless of the time period, if it was 30 years, 30 days, or even just 30 minutes, there was no way Daniel would comply with this. He was too loyal to his God to pray to anyone or anything else. And so this was a perfect test of loyalty to serve their purposes because Daniel's opponents knew exactly how he would respond. They had no doubt that Daniel would remain loyal to his Lord and he would end up violating the king's injunction. And it makes you wonder, if I was in a similar situation as this, with similar opponents, 
could they so easily manufacture my downfall because they could so easily predict what I would do that I would, beyond a shadow of doubt, remain loyal to the Lord? Would they just simply assume that? Am I even certain what I would do if I was ever faced with such a test? Are you certain? Do you know what you would do? You know, friends, I don't think we have the luxury much longer of only speaking in hypotheticals. Considering the secularizing direction of our society, in short order, if not already, Christians will be faced with difficult choices in our own tests of loyalty. Now, these tests may come to us in one of two forms. Like with Daniel's friends back in Daniel chapter 3, your loyalty to the Lord may be tested by those who will use legal means or societal pressure to compel you to compromise the faith. They'll try to pressure you to practice the wrong thing. In that case, in Daniel 3, it was worshiping an idol. They'll pressure you to do the wrong thing. Or, like in our story, in our chapter, your loyalty may be tested by those who want you to capitulate the faith to abandon it. They'll try to prevent you from practicing the right thing, like in this case, praying to the Lord. So either pressuring you to do the wrong thing or keeping you from doing the right thing, opposition will come. Well, Daniel's three friends, they passed their test. They refused to compromise. They refused to participate in the false worship of false gods. And of course, Daniel passed as well. He refused to capitulate. He refused to abandon the right worship of the one true God. So now the question is, what will you do when the time comes for you to face your own test of loyalty? Every generation of God's people faces their own set of tests. In early church history, believers were compelled by force of law and by threat to their lives to sacrifice to Caesar. They were pressured to confess Caesar as Lord. They were pressured to practice the wrong thing. Also, later on in church history, Christians were prevented from practicing the right thing. There was a time when Christians were pre prevented from owning their own Bibles or from translating their Bibles or reading it in their own vernacular, in their heart language. There are plenty of examples, tons of examples in church history of either form of persecution, getting you to do the wrong thing, keeping you from doing the right thing. And it continues on, even into our contemporary context. Today, believers find themselves compelled by force of law and by threats, maybe not to their lives in our context, at least to their livelihoods, to bow to the spirit of the age, to affirm or to celebrate that which Scripture teaches to be sinful. There will be pressure to practice the wrong thing, to worship a false ideal which really is a false god. Or on the horizon, there may be more explicit efforts to prevent churches from freely gathering to worship or to restrict pulpits from freely preaching the gospel. That's actually happening right now 
to the persecuted church around the globe. And so who's to say that the American church will be exempt from this kind of persecution? Now, friends, I'm not trying to be an alarmist here. I I think by the end of the message, you'll see that I am still fairly hopeful. But I do want to acknowledge, at least to acknowledge, the biblical promise that tests of our faith will come. That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That by many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, you know, when it comes to these recent restrictions that we've uh, been seeing in the news that have tried to limit the size of worship gatherings or to ban Christian practices like singing, we we can debate the legitimacy. We, We can debate the intent or whether it's fair to even compare them to the prayer restriction that's found here in Daniel 6. There are some important principles we need to consider, which I'll discuss in a minute. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that sooner or later, every Christian will face a test of loyalty. Where does your ultimate allegiance lie? In the Lord and his law or in earthly authorities and the opinion of man? Where does your allegiance lie? Now, if we pick up back in our story, we see Daniel respond to his test of loyalty with an unwavering refusal to bend and and a refusal to change his daily practice of prayer. This second observation here, this refusal to bend is exhibited not only by Daniel, but also by his opponents, by the law of the land, and even by his friend, King Darius. Notice with me in verse 10, how the text leaves no doubt that Daniel knew what he was doing. He was fully aware of this new injunction and of the consequences of his actions. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, what I find inspiring about Daniel's prayer life is that it was remarkably consistent. He had the discipline to pray three times a day, every day, probably morning, noon, and night. And with such predictability that, that his consp- the, the conspirators could form their plot around the pattern that they knew he kept. I mean, I'm I'm humbled and impressed by that aspect of his prayer life, especially when I consider how sporadic my own prayer life can be and how easily distracted I can be from forming any kind of consistent rhythm like Daniel. But you know what I think is even more impressive and even more instructive is to consider how Daniel prayed prayers of thanksgiving even in the face of such circumstances. Did you notice how it described the kind of prayers he prayed? I mean, let's be honest. If you and I were victims of an unjust plot by conspirators who were hell-bent on bringing us down, I'm not sure we would even have the sense to be praying. And even if we did happen to pray, I, I highly doubt prayers of thanksgiving would be the focus of our prayers. How much of our time in prayer would be focused on complaining 
about the difficult circumstances or the unfair situation that we find ourselves in? How much time would we be spending praying for God to change things, for him to make things different? Versus, like Daniel, taking the time to identify the evidence of God's grace even in these difficult circumstances and to give thanks for his goodness and his faithfulness to you. That, my friends, is a clear sign of a spiritually mature prayer life. That even in the face of such difficulties, it's prayers of thanksgiving that dominated his prayer life. Now, if you go back to that injunction that Daniel's opponents secured, you're going to notice that's actually a huge loophole in there that Daniel totally could have taken advantage of. The new law said that for the next 30 days, anyone who prays, has to direct that prayer towards the king. So it's not like they're requiring everyone to participate in some kind of prayer ceremony directed towards the king. It's just saying that if you do pray, it better be towards the king. Oh, well, that solution is pretty easy. For the next 30 days, you just pray silently in your head. You know, don't move your lips. Just go about doing your thing. Go do do a prayer walk. No one's going to know what you're doing, right? I mean, just don't do any gestures that give off the appearance of prayer. It's only a, m- a month. Just, just wait it out. But that won't work for Daniel. Since he had established a consistent pattern in his prayer life, observable enough by his peers and his opponents, he knows that breaking that pattern now in these next 30 days and reverting to just silent prayers in his head would be interpreted by others as a capitulation of his faith, as an abandonment of his devotion to the Lord. Daniel's love for the Lord and his zeal for the Lord's honor and glory means that he will refuse to bend, he will refuse to change his prayer life because he refuses to do anything that might dishonor God or cheapen his glory. And that's why he presses on with his daily routine, not changing a thing. Now notice how Daniel's not flaunting himself right now. He's not flaunting his, his opposition to the king's injunction. Because if he, if he really wanted to do that, if he really wanted to, to have everyone see him still get down on his knees and pray to the Lord, well, then he would have moved his regular uh, place of prayer from that upper chamber down to the lower chamber, to the first floor in front of the window where all the passerbys could see what he's doing. But he wasn't flaunting his opposition. And yet he wasn't hiding it either. He wasn't looking for trouble, but at the same time, he wasn't going to let anything detract from his devotion to the Lord. So he just pressed on doing what he does, and he quietly took part in an act of civil disobedience. Now, Christians need to be careful when appealing to the concept of civil disobedience as a reason for why we would violate an established law. Because we can't ignore the biblical commands that we are given to be subject to governing authorities, the ones that God has sovereignly placed us under. I mean, Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, those are all passages that speak of that responsibility for Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. So considering also how those commands were issued under the oppressive rule of tyrants like Nero— well, then we mustn't be quick to suddenly appeal to civil disobedience. But having said that, 
There are, of course, biblical examples of civil disobedience that serve as important examples for us. Uh, we mentioned already how Daniel's three friends refused to worship a graven image, a graven image, and they were willing to accept the penalty of death. We saw last week how Esther was willing to approach the king without being summoned, knowing that that was a violation of the law and that could result in her death. And in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were specifically prohibited from preaching the gospel, but they famously replied, we must obey God rather than men. So every generation of the church has to navigate this dilemma. We clearly ought to be subject to governing authorities as we are commanded in Scripture, but at what point have governing authorities overstepped their authority and manufactured a genuine test of loyalty, where Christians really have no other option but to obey God and not men. Now let's return to that recent example that I've been using, the example of government restrictions on churches that were issued during the peak of the pandemic. I think we ought to acknowledge right up front no simple answers to this scenario. There, there are no direct correlations in Scripture of restrictions during a time of a, uh, of, a, uh, of a global health scare. So we can't just point to a passage in Scripture and say, hey, there it is. We need to apply wisdom. We need to apply discernment. And so let me just offer some wisdom principles to help you discern whether civil disobedience is justified in a given situation. Four questions you have to ask yourself. First, you have to ask, are the governing authorities restricting you from fulfilling a biblical command? Now, in Daniel's case, he was restricted from praying to God. And in our case, some churches are restricted from gathering together, assembling, and from singing praises to the Lord. So those are all biblical commands in regards to our corporate worship. So yes, there is a restriction of biblical commands. But here's a second question we have to ask. Is the restriction temporary or indefinite? Temporary or indefinite? Well, in Daniel's, both in Daniel's case and in ours, the restriction on an individual's religious practice did have a time stamp. It was not meant to curtail your freedoms forever. Patiently waiting for the injunction to expire could have been an option. But there is a crucial third question to ask. Is the temporary restriction being made in good faith with the common good in mind? Well, in Daniel's situation, it's clearly not the case because we know it was part of a larger plot against him. But in our situation, I think there is a case to be made that in a pandemic caused by a highly contagious airborne virus, there's a case to be made for temporary restrictions on large assemblies or on particular activities, all in a good faith effort to contain the spread of that virus. But of course, that raises a fourth question. Is the temporary restriction being uniformly applied or specifically targeted? If sports arenas and casinos are given a pass and allowed to operate at a high capacity while churches and other houses of worship are banned from doing something similar, well, then you do have a much stronger case to protest, 
to appeal, and even if necessary, to exercise civil, civil disobedience. So, friends, those are some wisdom principles that I think would be relevant to what we're experiencing that we can be able to consider for the days and the months and the years to come when greater pressure and greater restrictions on Christian faith and practice will more likely be a felt reality for all of us in our context. Now, if we return to our text, if we return to verse 14, this comes a key moment in the narrative. Here's our third observation. We we see a display of true sovereignty. King Darius, who is known as the sovereign of the land, found himself to be helpless and distressed. And the one true king who rules over all went on to display his sovereignty and power in the pit of a lion's den. So starting in verse 14, we see that Darius truly did care for Daniel, and he spent the rest of his day trying to find a loophole for his friend. But as much as Daniel refused to bend, well, the laws of the Medes and Persian were equally inflexible. And so Darius knew that his hands were tied. He knew that he had no choice but to comply with the law and to simply hope that Daniel's God was more sovereign than him. After Daniel was cast into the lion's den, the king cried out to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Darius recognized his limits and his inability to deliver those who are destined for destruction. We're told in verse 18 that Darius had the worst night of his life. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He lost his appetite. He was just distressed. He was worried the entire night for his friend. But ironically, his friend spent a peaceful night of sleep at the bottom of a lion's den. And that just, that contrast right there just goes to show where true peace and refuge can be found. Not in the might or the resources of earthly powers, but friends, in the presence of the Lord, the one true king and sovereign of all. It's it's funny how we spend so much of our lives trying to achieve greater degrees of power and success. But Daniel proves that without the Lord in your life, you'll still be gripped with fear and sleep will still escape you. But Daniel, on the other hand, also proves that with the Lord in your life, even in circumstances as difficult as a lion's den, you can always still rest your head in peace. That, my friends, is the difference that the Lord makes if he's in your life. In verse 19, we're told that at daybreak, the king ran to the lion's den and he cried out in a tone of anguish, Verse 19, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And the entire narrative is leading us really to that question there found in in verse 20. Does the Lord have the ability to deliver his saints from certain death? That's the key question. Now, in verse 21, we see the resounding answer is yes. The Lord sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and Daniel emerged from the den unscathed without a scratch on his body. And he goes on to explain to the king that he was delivered by God because he was found blameless before God and because he trusted in God. 
The lion's den was an ultimate test of loyalty for Daniel, and he passed with flying colors. His opponents, on the other hand, well, they were judged and found to be guilty, and they were thrown in that exact same den, and with their entire household, they were overpowered by the lions. Now, friends, by shutting the mouths of the lions... And by delivering Daniel from their grasp, the Lord displayed his true sovereignty over and against all earthly powers. That is, that is clearly seen in this text. But it makes you wonder, if God is so powerful and so in control of the situation, then it makes you wonder, why didn't he just shut the eyes of Daniel's opponents as easily as he shut the mouths of the lions so that they would never see him praying in the first place, that they would never catch him in the act. And then he never would have to face such a terrifying ordeal as a lion's den. But apparently, that was never God's plan. He never planned on delivering Daniel from that ordeal, but to deliver him through it. We wish the Lord would deliver us from all of our trials while his plan is to deliver us through them. What that tells us is that God is far more committed to our spiritual growth than he is to our safety and security. He very well may lead us into circumstances that are far from safe and far from secure. We spend so much of our time and so much of our effort trying to avoid those kinds of circumstances in life, to surround ourselves instead with comfort and convenience, but all the while it's in those difficult circumstances, it's in the fiery furnace, it's in the lion's den where we experience God's presence. It's in those places where we grow the most in our faith. So friends, this confidence, this blessed assurance that God will be with us and will deliver us through our trials, friends, this confidence is rooted in the good news that after Daniel, God sent another prophet who also fell victim to a plot against his life. If you were to compare Daniel's ordeal to Jesus's, you're going to find that the similarities between them are quite striking. Both were framed and accused of breaking the law by those who were jealous of their growing influence. Both were arrested while at their customary place of prayer. Both had a ruler make futile attempt to secure their release. And both had to utterly rely on God to deliver them while their tombs were sealed shut. But of course, the biggest difference between the two men is that Daniel emerged from the lion's den without a scratch, while Jesus was pierced by a crown of thorns on his brow, pierced by nails in his hands and feet and by a spear in his side. And when he did emerge from the tomb, his scars continued to show. But friends, that's what makes his emergence all the more glorious and all the, all the more blessed. That's what makes his miracle a greater miracle than the one that delivered Daniel. 
Daniel's deliverance really had no impact on anyone beside himself. His deliverance from the lion den wasn't going to help the next person who found himself in that same den. But when Jesus emerged from the tomb, he secured a pardon for all who would trust in him. His deliverance is a help to all who will one day find themselves in a tomb. Because of Christ, friends, there is hope beyond the grave. And it's the resurrection. It's that divine display of true sovereignty that enables us to press on and to practice our faith in spite of any mounting opposition that is to come. No matter what challenges do come our way, no matter what um, risks that we face against our own lives, our livelihood, we too can refuse to bend because our Savior lives, because he will be with us in our trials. and We know he will deliver us through them. That's the confidence that we can have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that confidence that we have in our resurrected Lord. That because he rose from the tomb, because he lives today, Lord, we know that any trial that is to come, any ordeal that we are to face, Lord, we know that Christ is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for that blessed assurance. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.